Welcome to the War in Ukraine update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Ivan Shmatko and Daphna Rachok. Ivan and Daphna are both doctoral students currently located in Kyiv in Ukraine and have been very involved in volunteer activities that have been happening there since the 24th of February this year. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Ivan and Daphna. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So first of all, could you just tell listeners a little bit about yourselves and what you do? So um, I'm a PhD candidate at Indiana University of Bloomington. I returned um, to Ukraine in August 2021. I was supposed to do my field research for my doctoral dissertation here. And I was kind of uh, doing that until February when the all-out invasion started. And then, well, it was, I don't know, like both, both um, impossible and to do research and also I didn't feel like it because there were like more pressing issues to attend to. So after uh, February, um, I turned like more of a volunteer and less than a researcher. But then step by step, I was adding this like research component to my activities because I mean, a lot of people uh, whom we were helping they were my um, they were my participants. Um, so kind of like some of our, our volunteer network, they also grew thanks to my research. So it was very like difficult to separate one from another. I'm a PhD student actually in Canada, in the University of Alberta. I'm a criminologist, and I actually also came in August to do my field work. I was preparing for it and never actually started before February. Because of the invasion, I think I, I changed my topic, and now I'm studying experiences of newly drafted people who were civilians before 24th of February, mm-hmm. uh, because there are many, many, many people like that. Most of them volunteered in one way or another, kind of changes how Ukrainian army fights and what it does. Mm-hmm. That seems like very important research. For both of you, so you were actually in Kyiv since August, how was that period for both of you being in Kyiv and watching or being aware of that buildup of Russian troops on Ukraine's borders? What was that experience like? I think we should divide here uh, Ukrainian people and people abroad, I guess, in certain extents, because I think it was much more expected that there is going to be a full-scale invasion in Ukraine, more than, than abroad. But still, most Ukrainians, those are just my impressions, but I'm quite sure about it. Most people still, I would say, expected, but didn't believe that there's going to be a full-scale invasion. And even people, most people who expected and even believed, they thought that there were, would be a more limited invasion, not on such big scale. For us personally, I think we were more or less prepared because it was quite evident. We had these debates, actually, we were kind of prepared in different ways, but still both of us were prepared for something to happen. A few days before 24th, we went for a training in... On tactical medicine. On tactical medicine. So we were preparing for this kind of things. 
we also had some kind of plans of how to get out of Kiev if something happens. We also went to donate blood. We went to donate blood a few days before 24th. Mm -hmm. We packed up some of our things. We had a full gas tank and so on and so on. But that's not what happened to most people in Ukraine. Some, some of the Ukrainians prepared, but from what we hear, many, many people still, I would rather say not believe, because people precisely, when you talk with people who stayed or who were in occupation and so on, many people say, yes, there were all this kind of news, it was building up, but we didn't want to believe that it's possible. We didn't want to acknowledge to themselves, essentially, that, that that's a real possibility, that that's the new reality they live in. On the 24th, we were in the village of Hoenka. Hoenka is a village that is located between Hostomol, the city of Hostomol, and Kiev. Hostomol is a city that has an airport. And the Russians attacked that airport on the very first day, in the very mm-hmm. first hours. But they didn't attack it with rockets like they did with most of the airports because they didn't want to destroy it. it they attacked it by landing VDV, right? This airborne troops there because they wanted to use it then to, loca- to attack Kiev as a base to attack Kiev. That airport is like five kilometers, or I don't know, even Something less, like to to the place we, we were on the 24th. So on the very first day, we would see helicopters flying around, military helicopters, uh, we would smell fire. So essentially, we were very close. We packed our things into her mother's car, actually, picked up three more people, two more dogs. We had five people and three dogs and then evacuated Kiev because our plan was that we would evacuate from the place where it's dangerous, then think about what we can do and how we can be helpful, and then be helpful because it doesn't make any sense to stay in occupation. There is a big chance that you will be just a burden and people will then risk their lives to help you get out of the occupation, which that happened actually in many, many places. Talking about like people abroad versus like people in Ukraine preparing for the invasion. I have to say that there was a lot of talk, of course, about this massive true buildup on the borders. And um, a lot of people like from my university, for instance, they were saying like, you know, this thing is going on. Maybe you will think about leaving Ukraine. And I, and I was uh, quite frank that if something happens, I want to stay here. I want to be useful. Mm-hmm. But like on the, other, on the other hand, I was also a little bit soothed by all these different experts on Ukraine because... Of course, I had this anxiety that something was going to happen because I remember that this moment when I started to think like something may really happen. It's when um, I read the news that Russia is uh, Russia is building up a field hospitals and is bringing a lot of uh, blood to that hospital. And like on the one hand, yes, you have to have like proper conditions, right, to be able to store this blood for some time. But on the other hand, you're not bringing blood there just for nothing for it to like be stored, right? I was kind of like sensing that something may uh, may happen, but. To call my anxieties, I was uh, zooming into a lot of different panels where these things were discussed. And 
90% of people like speaking on this panel, they were saying like, oh, like there will be no invasion, like calm down, Putin, Putin is just testing the unity of the West. This invasion, it will never happen. And I was like, well, maybe these people kind of know something that maybe I'm just like panicking uh, in vain. So maybe I will just calm down. I still had the emergency bag back just in case, you know, it wouldn't hurt mm-hmm. to have one. But yeah, on the 24th, when everything happened, I was like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't have been soothed by all those people saying that nothing will happen. Yeah. To be fair, Mm -hmm. I think many people from international relations and political science were precisely the people that a little bit uh, made a mistake, let's say. It seems that many people we're assuming rational agents there, right? That politics is driven by some kind of rational calculations. And it seems that it's not always the case, at least in this, in this situation. Well, it seems obvious to us that it was driven by, should I say, let's say irrational, imperialist, emotional sentiments. It was actually like a lesson in the importance of ideology that like what yes. a lot of us mistook for propaganda it was actually like people expressing their sincere thoughts and everybody would be like but sorry your thoughts couldn't be that dumb but turned yeah. out they could the stuff you see on russian tv it appears that it wasn't just for for the russian population or whatever to fool them into voting putin or whatever but it seems that it's really the same that elites think right about all this crap about Ukrainians not existing and being just small Russians and things like that. It seems that it's a real thing that people believe. I mean, people in the Kremlin, if you wish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes me think that oftentimes it wasn't so much expertise that people were speaking out of, but it was more just a lack of belief that it could actually occur. Like it was the thought that this couldn't happen, there couldn't be an absolute full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. Putin couldn't try to completely take over Ukraine and affect regime change. That seems crazy or ridiculous, but it wasn't necessarily coming from a real understanding of what was happening inside Putin's regime or inside the Russian domestic context. I would say that people who were saying that it's crazy, they were actually right saying that it's crazy. The problem is the assumption that crazy things cannot happen which is obviously not the case. We know from our personal experiences, right, of our, in our lives, and I think it applies to international relations as well, international politics, crazy things happen. That's why we have a word crazy for it, right, to describe it. And, uh, well, it was a crazy thing to do. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't do it. They did. Mm-hmm. And still are. And still are. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that desire to stay in Ukraine in order to be useful to your country, your people, your society. So could you say a bit about what sort of activities you've been involved in since the full-scale invasion? One of the first things that we started, we were uh, translating different, we were translating videos with Russian like POWs, we were translating like press conferences with them, making uh, English uh, subtitles and publishing them because it felt that a lot of things that they are saying, English speaking audience has to hear it and they has to know that yes, there was like extensive preparation for the invasion that yes, uh, these people, they were given like explicit uh, orders to target civilian infrastructure that 
everything these people say, it has kind of to be documented. So um, that was kind of like the first phase of our volunteering, so to say. So it was more kind of like information um, slash uh, digital things. But then uh, Ivan talked to a friend, uh, like a colleague of ours. Uh, he joined uh, Territorial Defense Forces um, on the 24th. And essentially this uh, person, uh, they were saying that well, we don't really have like a lot of protective gear. Like basically we have nothing that we were giving the AK rifle and that's all. We still lack a bulletproof vest. We still lack a helmet. We don't have tourniquets. Medicine, tactical medical stuff. Right, mad kits. And so we were like, okay, so what can we do about that? Um, so that was kind of like the push that made us think about, okay, how do we organize, how basically we provide all these things to our friends, friends of friends, and then like our networks kept growing. So we started to fundraise, we started to find basically where you can find this gear, how you can buy it, how you can um, bring it from different places to the border. And then uh, we would take it from Lviv, uh, the city in Western Ukraine, and then we would drive it to um, Kiev or to Kriverich. Uh, and Ivan was doing most of the driving and I was doing most of the coordination. So I was uh, talking to people and asking, okay, like, what do you need? How many of these and other things do you need? And basically uh, trying to find like where we can secure all these things. At the beginning, the reason why we were involved in, so to say, digital internet stuff was not because we wanted but because we couldn't be helpful otherwise. And what I mean by that is that during the first days, it was really, really hard to actually get involved in some kind of volunteer, volunteering or get being helpful. And it amazed us. We don't idealize Ukrainian society. There are many, many problems and issues, but that thing really amazed us. During the first days, it was almost impossible to do something, so to say, with your body, with your body being present. Obviously, everything digital also is in your body involved. But what I mean is actually drive someone somewhere or unpack things or donate blood. And it's not just our experience. Many, many people had it. You would go to a blood donation center and you would say, hey, do you need my blood uh, to help soldiers and people and civilians who were wounded and so on and so on? Uh, you would be told, no, because we don't have any more capacity to store. There are so many people coming and donating their blood. So at a certain point, for example, I called border posts that announced that they need people with cars to, 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 to bring some cargo. Yeah, sorry, just we called them like five hours after this uh, announcement of theirs was published. And immediately mm -hmm. I was told, no, there are so many people that called that we don't know any more drivers. You would call here and there and say, hey, I know English, I can translate, for example. Hey, I have this ability. Hey, I have a car and so on and so on. And on every turn, you would be told that, no, there are so many people that want to do this stuff. That's why for the first weeks, until we realize that there are actual needs that are not covered by volunteers, we realize that you just have to organize your own volunteering operation to cover mm -hmm. them. Because all the people who already have some organized things that are going on, operations that are going on, they are just, they are just full of volunteers. 
what was needed was people who would organize their own operation. And that's exactly what we did, essentially. And then people would know people who knew people who knew us and who got the information that we are driving a car full of supplies from point A to point B. And then random people started to call us and ask like, hey, can you bring this? Or, hey, I left all kinds of things. I left my laptop in Kiev when I was evacuating and I'm an IT guy. Could you please, I will give you the keys. Could you please take the laptop and then on your way back, for example, give it to me. All kinds of issues emerged and that network of contacts, it was really working as a network that would start to grow. And that's how uh, one time thing of moving right. cargo from Lviv uh, to Kiev became a full scale operation because this network was growing, 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 growing. And then suddenly we realized that we are in a full time mode, constantly driving things around and trying to procure things and fundraising. The things that we were trying to uh, provide, it all started with the bulletproof vest and helmets, but then we were also like buying medicine for civilians and for uh, for people in the military. Then many people, they already didn't need a bulletproof vest and they already had a vest and a helmet, but they needed like some more, some cooler stuff like thermal imagers. And they would tell us, okay, now we need a thermal imagers. And we would say, okay, that's something new, but okay, we'll try to find it. I wrote my master's thesis um, about sex work. So I had a lot of contacts in the uh, sex workers community and mm -hmm. I'm writing my doctoral dissertation about um, HIV programs in Ukraine. So uh, a lot of people um, who were my participants, they also like started calling us and saying like, okay, so I know that you have like access to some medicine. So we need like this list. Can you please help us provide this? And we were like, okay, yeah, whatever we are able to find, everything is yours. So The same goes to people with disabilities. There are some activists who work with these groups. They also asked us in certain, so the network essentially was growing and we were doing all kinds of things and procuring all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting how you describe those first few weeks and where it was almost like there were so many people organizing activities and volunteer work and etc. that there was an influx of people. What do you attribute that to? Like, do you think that's obviously a full-scale invasion is a very intense and extreme event in any case? But do you think that's also partly because Ukraine has been in this more low-scale war with Russia since 2014? So maybe there was already that feeling of existential threat. So people maybe already had some awareness or some understanding that they might need to be galvanised to protect the country in a way that I could imagine, certainly in Australia, that it might take a little bit longer for people to sort of respond, react get organized, start to create initiatives, et cetera? I know it's a difficult question, but what would you attribute that to? No, it's an awesome question. I would say uh, no and yes. <laughs> no, in terms of the wars that started in Crimea, essentially, but let's say it started in Donbass because that's what people normally mention. In many ways, in some ways, it didn't contribute to what happened. By this, I mean that actually it has been going on for so long, for eight years, that actually 
Ukrainian society was getting tired of it and there was less and less attention to it. People, most of the people just wanted to get back to their normal lives and so on. It was not as present in public discussions. Not so many people volunteered there. Less and less people volunteered for, for, the, for the war that was going on in Donbass. It was kind of almost frozen conflict. So in that regard, people, it was not preparing people to react in a way they reacted at, on 24th and later. But at the same time, yes, because first Maidan and then Russian invasion in Crimea and Donbass in 2014, they helped people to create networks and actually to, to develop certain, I'm not sure how to call it, mental frameworks. Mental schemes about how you should react when something like that happens, when there is a crisis. Because during Maidan and then during the Russian invasion in 2014, on a smaller scale than uh, on 24th of February, but still many, many people volunteered uh, during Maidan protests, for example, organized food, uh, people would organize uh, to provide medical care for protesters at Maidan and then later. Uh, when the war started, people would organize to provide, yes, the same bulletproof vest. All kind of volunteer operations emerged. They were not, they were pretty much localized generally, either at Donbass or at the Maidan protests. But that helped people, first of all, to have this kind of mental capacity to automatically react to crises in certain ways. Like, we know what to do. Even if I did, wasn't involved in that, I know that many people did, did just that. People were prepared not to wait for the government, for example, to do something. During my time, obviously, the government was on the other side. But there are many reasons why people in general in Ukraine and post-Soviet states, they don't often rely on the government to do things, to procure things, even in their personal lives. It's a, a whole different another topic. But still, people were prepared. They knew what to do. They were ready. And they would develop networks. Even if you were not involved in volunteering, you would knew some people, for example, who were involved in volunteering, who had this experience. And that helped uh, on 24th and later on during the full-scale innovation because people were prepared in that regard. But in terms of the wars that were happening for eight years, I think quite to the contrary, mm. people were actually very tired of it, very tired of thinking about it, very tired of doing anything about it, and so on. I would say like that. So yes and no. In addition to these like practical things of people having kind of like pre-formed networks and either knowing or like knowing someone like who knows what to do when this uh, kind of like thing erupts. But I think also on the 24th and after the 24th, it was this like, it was this sentiment of a lot of people like leave us the fudge alone that helped mm -hmm. to mobilize a lot of people and actually kind of like push them to join the volunteering effort to help to do something because People really, they were getting tired of this war. A lot of people, they were just like, oh my God, like, can we just like, please go back to normal? You know, like I want some kind of stability. I want my routine back. And honestly, like full-scale invasion, it's 
always an inconvenience. So like it always like disrupts your um, patterns of life. And I think and also because it was done again, right, by Russia, who was at war with Ukraine since 2014, like a lot of people had this sentiment, like, oh my God, how much do you want? Like really like leave us alone. We will do almost like anything just to stop it and to go back to our normal lives. There was this like collective feeling that it would be possible like after we kind of like push push you guys kick their butts. yeah kick, kick their butts and push you push you back because otherwise you would keep coming it's you know a lot of people are having this metaphor now of like having a really like bad neighbor living next door a guy who he always goes to your place and picks up a fight and you're like oh my god okay like i cannot move but I have to do something with that guy. Yeah, I think, mm-hmm. yes, the general feeling was people were pissed off, like really pissed off mm-hmm. uh, because of this full-scale invasion. And in that regard, Donbass contributed to it because, as Dr. mentioned, people were pissed off that it's never ending. You want always more. You will go the next. You will not, never stop. So we don't want this war. We would better go to our normal lives but we have no choice but to kick your butts because <laughs> it will never stop. You will want more. You will always make our lives miserable otherwise. And that helped in a weird way because I don't think it's, that's a typical motivation for people to go and fight or volunteer or whatever. Mm-hmm. The people were pissed off and wanted just to end this, even though it may mean that you will not have a peaceful, normal life for a long time, but in order to have, to have a perspective, to have this kind of the future uh, possibility of normal life, you have to mobilize yourself and to get in this state of living your normal life completely. It's not just the Ukrainian army that is fighting in Ukraine. It's not just a professional army fighting and everybody else is just whatever, going to the work. People mobilized and are helping at least a little bit uh, donating money. Maybe they are not super active, but they would just donate 50 grivnas, uh, that's Ukrainian currency, every month. Some people more, some people would get involved in full-time volunteering. Some people would go and get mobilized to fight. But almost everyone you know is helping in one way or another. It's not just the war of the state, it's the war of the whole society that got mobilized mm-hmm. and decided that we have to fight back. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense to me completely. And I think it's also been quite obvious in some ways. Like that's what people are sort of, I mean, I don't want to say admiring because I know like it's a really awful situation. So you don't want to kind of make it sound like anything positive. But on the other hand, there has been a sort of an admiration observing. I think that spirit or that sentiment that you're talking about has actually come across pretty clearly. And it makes me think about your research project as well. Like I imagine there are a lot more civilians now who are engaged in some kind of more military activity than would have been the case in sort of the previous conflict. It was, we don't know exactly for obvious reasons. It's not an open information, but Ukrainian army had about 200,000 people before the 24th of February. Obviously not all of those 200,000 would fight, right? Only part of that. But anyway, about 200,000 people were in the Ukrainian army before 24th. 
Nowadays, those numbers are even less reliable nowadays because you don't want for the invader to know, but it's about 700,000, perhaps more people. It's um, it almost wow. like it's more than tripled in size. It's more than tripled. You can imagine that it didn't triple by having professional military personnel joining the army, right? Those, say, 500,000 plus, absolute majority of those people uh, are people who were, I don't know, IT guys yesterday or just people like me. Many, many people didn't have an army experience. In fact, many people would avoid being drafted and going to the army before 24th, actively avoid going to the army. Mm -hmm. But after 24th, they volunteered, went to the military recruitment office and say, hey, I want to go and serve. Mm -hmm. That's the scale. You have many, many more people who were civilians just before 24th, and even most of them wouldn't have a military experience than actual people who were serving in the army before 24th. Those are really striking numbers that you just mentioned. The central focus of the war has obviously shifted to the Donbass, even though there are still missiles striking Kyiv quite frequently and many other places in Ukraine. So I'm sure you still feel that you are in the midst of a war. But how have things changed or what is the atmosphere like as the war drags on? I would uh, just start by saying that I think it was a little bit easier for people to kind of like get tired uh, from the war um, at Donbass before this full-scale invasion happened because it was much more localized. And I also think that there were some like problems on the on the part of Ukraine with framing that because uh, you probably know that uh, essentially the Ukrainian government didn't readily frame it as a war, right? We uh, framed it as anti-terrorist operation at first, and then it was this joint forces operation. And well, language matters, right? Because it helps us classify things, it helps us define things. And I think that like essentially like not framing it as a war, it helped uh, a lot of uh, people in Ukraine to kind of distance ourselves from that. So like, it's like not a war, it's this weird conflict that is happening like somewhere like far away. So it does not affect me directly. And obviously it was much more difficult to do that with with this invasion that happened on February 24th. And I think that it was also like a great like narrative victory that Ukraine immediately framed it as a war that Ukraine Ukraine immediately named named the aggressor. Probably if those things would have done in 2013, maybe things would have gone differently, but we would never know, right? And now, of course, people are also like getting tired of the invasion. I think it's inevitable because, right, it has been like dragging on like for four months. A lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people like lost their homes. It's natural to want to go to some kind of like normality, right? But I think it's way more difficult because like we all know that the war is going on. There is still like curfew in Kiev and in most of the cities. There are still like news about this war, like main news about this war that like pop up whenever you open like whenever you open social media and like with the missile strikes and with air raid sirens like continuing. 
we all want to have some kind of normality. We all want we all want to go back to this routine. But at the same time, I think a lot of people they know that well we won't be able to 100% achieve that kind of normality until these conflict drugs are, until Russian soldiers are present at Ukrainian soil. You can be tired of the war, but you cannot hide from it. So it doesn't matter if you're tired or not in, in a certain sense. It's evident you walk through the streets, you walk through the parks and whatnot. People talk about the war all the time. All kinds of people in all kinds of situations. You go and there are some uh, men drinking vodka, which is which happened in the park. They talk about the war. You walk and you see a rich young woman uh, in a fancy clothes walking down the street, and she is on a mobile phone, and she is like, "Yes, and how many tourniquets you need?" <laughs> I think um, precisely because this was this war has been going on for more than four months now, and precisely because of the scale of this war, a lot of people they know someone personally who is fighting they mm. may know personally someone who has died they may know personally someone who has been wounded someone who has been freed from being a pow or who is being a P pow now so in mm. this war you are also like personally you are tied more to this conflict and i think in, in part this also isn't really allowing you to forget that it is going on. That's actually what's quite different and causes many conflicts uh, between Ukrainians and Russians, for example, on social media, because in Russia, it's a completely different situation. At the beginning, Daphne talked about frameworks. That's exactly what Russian authorities were trying to do, to frame it as a special operation, right? Because obviously it's bull, but the point is, in some ways, they succeeded in that strategy because Ukrainians get pissed at Russians all the time because from Russians, you get the vibe that for most of them, especially in Moscow and Petersburg, people mm -hmm. who have means, their friends, for example, don't fight. Right? Russia recruits most of the fighting force from depressed regions, places like Boyatia, Buryat region, Dagestan. Dagestan, and so on and so on. Those recruits are quite localized to depressed regions where many people would know someone who is a POW or died or was wounded. If you're uh, some uh, more or less young person in Moscow with means who works in Yandex, this Russian Google, it's very possible that you don't know anyone who is fighting. Essentially, you don't see the war, you don't feel the war, you just read on the news that something is happening. And that's a totally different experience. It's something that is happening somewhere there. It's not the same. Here, yes, you know, I think everybody, I think it's safe to say that everybody knows someone who's fighting. Almost everybody knows someone who is either dead, wounded, or... Sorry, you definitely... Definitely, we can say that everyone knows someone who has suffered from this war. That's in, for sure. Yeah. Thank you. So it's a totally different vibe. And that's one of many reasons why Ukrainians have many conflicts, even with people in Russia who are in opposition to the regime, because they, they talk about this conflict as something that is happening somewhere there. It's not, it's, for example, they can joke about it easily in ways that are different than people. People actually joke about the war a lot in Ukraine, but in a very different way. And it's extremely annoying because people mm. are like, 
oh, why are you so angry? Why are you so depressed? And here you're like, what do you mean? Like I had three sirens today. What do you mean? In Russia, they succeeded in getting that feeling. Thank you so much to both of you. This has been just a very interesting conversation for me personally, and I'm sure for our listeners also. Is there, I'm wondering if you want to direct listeners towards any particular place or site where they can help out or support if they want to? There are many places. The important thing to say, and I even can refer not just our personal experience, though it's extensive because of our volunteering, but even to research. Elizabeth Callendon, right? A professor at Indiana University actually studies this kind of things. The first thing would be, please, 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 if you want to donate, do not donate to large organizations like Red Cross or the UN. Or UNICEF. Or Yes, and there are good reasons for that. In practice in Ukraine, absolute majority of those organizations, they absolutely failed in their response. There is a lot of volunteering in Ukraine, but almost all the work is done by local groups and volunteers. Small initiatives, small, sometimes large initiatives, but not as large as Red Cross, for example. Those initiatives are much more effective. They are quick in response. Local initiatives, I mean, they don't have much bureaucracy, which is suspicious sometimes for people. But actually, in practice, it allows them to be very, very effective. You know what's going on on the ground. You are constantly in contact on the needs that change really quickly during this war. Every week is important, which we cannot say the same about Red Cross that is extremely slow, that actually is present in Ukraine in a very limited, not just Red Cross, UN, many other agencies, this international agency, they are present in Ukraine in a very limited scale. Essentially, they were not much helpful during this war. They are quite limited in what they can do. For example, in a uh, satellite town, Irpin, which became famous, probably almost everyone saw these photos, people standing under the bridge. That was the bridge from Irpin to Kiev. People were evacuated, right? People from evacuated when there was a fighting there. And it was very important. You would have to do it really quick. You wouldn't have time. Like It needed to be done now. And Red Cross essentially said, no, we will not do that because Russians are firing and they didn't give us a permission to evacuate. So sorry, we kind of do our procedures, whatever. But many local volunteers, many of them just volunteers, like I have a car and I will just drive there, pick up the people there and drive back. And some people were shot by the Russian snipers while doing that, like people were heroes, I guess. If you want to donate, please, please, please donate to local Ukrainian mm-hmm. initiatives. At the same time, yes, there are respectable initiatives uh, that you can trust. One of them is, for example, in Ukrainian, which uh, in English you can Google it, come back alive. It's a very respectable initiative that helps veterans of the wars helps Ukrainian defense forces. I'll link to Come Back Alive, but also any other organizations that you think are reputable, but really are being able to have reach on the ground. Thank you for talking to me today. It's a very valuable conversation. Thank you so much for inviting us. It was a pleasure. Yes, thank you. 
Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music.